welcome to this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to start by reminding you of the most important truth in the entire universe. God loves you. All right, before we finish up um, the month of December, I wanted to wrap up just a couple of last conspiracy theories um, or criticisms that are thrown out there around the Christmas story and some of the things that we've been talking about in the month of December, which I've really enjoyed, and I hope you've enjoyed that as well. You know, I think one of the things, and, and as we walk through going forward and we look at this question of where did the universe come from and where did we come from, and when we start looking at the accuracy of Scripture down the road, one of the things that we're going to find as we look at some of these questions on the accuracy of Scripture is there's an enormous amount of criticism heaped on the early church fathers and on the writers of the, of the New Testament. And it is remarkable how much grief they get from us 2,000 years later. And, and I'm just stunned by that because these were people who were there. These were people who died for their beliefs. And, you know, we're told all sorts of things. We're told that they are, they are just so illiterate and apparently just so uneducated that it's a wonder that they could actually get out of bed and function on a daily basis. But at the same time, we're told that they were just these evil conspirators and they, they worked up these tremendously complex lies just to, I don't ever know the what, I don't ever understand exactly what it is that they were lying for because most of them ended up paying the price with their life for the things that they firmly attested to happen that they believed occurred. It's one thing, I guess, if we look at them and look at it and say, well, we don't believe them. But it's another to hold everything that they did in contempt for one reason or another. And unfortunately, critics a lot of times are allowed to have this both ways. They're both too stupid to have possibly been able to have spoken in multiple languages. But at the same time, they're so smart that they pulled off the greatest conspiracy in history. And yet, at the same time, they're so inept that they did it in such a way that we can now, with our wisdom 2,000 years later, just see right through it. It's, it, we just want to talk in circles around all sides of it. And I really don't understand why it is the skeptics are allowed this level of criticism on this particular topic. I understand why some people approach this from a place of skepticism. And it, certainly there's a lot on the table when we're looking at this from a grander perspective. But I also think we have to be realistic and we have to hold standards in place that we would hold in place for ourselves today and are standards that make good, reasonable sense. The people who were there are the people who are best, who are going to best be able to tell us what happened. And they deserve the benefit of the doubt until we have reason to believe that something is wrong. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. I, I'll admit I'm a big fan of the John Wick movies. Love them. I think they're great. Yeah, a little gory, but you know, whatever. But we had gone to Europe a couple years ago. And when we were in Europe, we went to Paris and wandered all around Paris and just had a great time. So in the last John Wick movie, there, there's a scene towards the end of the movie and Lawrence Fishburne's character is dropping John Wick off so he can go have his fight at the Sacre Coeur. And, and, he, and he basically says, we're getting you as close as we can and you're going to have to get there the rest of the way. And the spot that they put him in Paris could not be geographically further away from the Sacre Coeur if you tried. 
And when we're in the movie theater watching this, my wife and I just kind of looked at each other and chuckled because we both realized how ridiculous the scene was when it came up. We both kind of looked at each other after the movie and went, you know, if John Wick wanted to get to the Sacre Coeur, he could have just ridden the subway in disguise and kind of gotten off the subway at the stop that's right there and just walked up the steps and been done with it. Um, don't get me wrong, it made for a great fight, you know, multiple fight scenes on the way there. But the idea that they dropped him as close as they possibly could, yeah, that, that wasn't realistic. And we went to the Eiffel Tower. We rode all the way to the top in the Eiffel Tower. And never once did we actually see the, the radio station that's run by the Assassin's you know, Guild in the movie and that's run by the high table. And we all did chuckle that that was apparently not on the Eiffel Tower tour that we had signed up for. And we missed that. And we saw most of the Eiffel Tower. And we had a good laugh about all of that. But the reason that we knew that is because we had been there. And we had been there and recognized that what was put in the movie was entertaining and interesting, but it was factually incorrect. So if it came down to a situation of you looking at me versus you looking at John Wick in that one regard, I, I should get the benefit of the doubt because I've been there. I was there and I physically walked around the city of Paris and, you know, it made, don't get me wrong, it made for an entertaining movie, but it wasn't remotely accurate in terms of just the geography of where the landmarks were around Paris and where they supposedly dropped, dropped John off as close as they possibly could to get him to the Sacre Coeur. The same is true in all of this as well. The people who were there deserve the benefit of the doubt as it comes to some of these things. So I want to I want to touch base on the last couple of conspiracy items. I want to finish up with a couple of last things from a few episodes ago where we talked about the differences between the uh, nativity story from Matthew and Luke. And then I want to jump into a last couple of other things that are really popular online. So a couple of quick things. I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that the two stories, Matthew and Luke, they fit together perfectly. And what they add to each other by bringing in two different eyewitnesses' testimony is there's a richness and a context that you wouldn't have gotten if either one of them just focused on one testimony alone. There, when you get to that question and you look at some of those things, and again, I'll refer you back to our podcast a couple of weeks ago to look at that question if you want to look at it in more detail, but I had to cut it a little bit short uh, we've gone 30 minutes, and I, want, I tried to keep our, all of our podcasts below that. But when you look at that, you know, there's a couple of last questions I wasn't able to address. Why, number one, why is it that Mary wouldn't have mentioned in her testimony the arrival of the wise men and everything that happened with Herod and the death of the children around Bethlehem? And that's really very easy when you consider it from Mary's perspective. Mary had to have carried an enormous amount of guilt over what happened. And again, it's not her fault. But when the wise men arrive and Herod ultimately unleashes his soldiers and goes in and kills the children around Bethlehem and in that area, you had to know from Mary's perspective that that was a particularly painful topic. And I'm sure she never talked about it. So when you look at the two accounts, when Matthew relays Joseph's account of things, it's not surprising from a dad's point of view that that's something you would remember and talk about because as a dad, you would be protecting your family and this is something that, you know, you, you would have a lot of stake in. You would want to discuss that. Mary, it's easy to understand why she didn't discuss that. 
The other thing I mentioned a couple weeks ago was is that it may have taken several years for the wise men to get to Bethlehem. That Jesus may have, may have been as much as two years old. We know that based on the timing for Herod's order to execute the male children, two years old and younger, based on when the star had appeared, what he was able to learn from the wise men. Remember, the sign in heaven, you know, again, we go with the Hollywood version. We have this idea that there's a bright light shining down in heaven, and it's shining directly on the manger. It's shining directly on Jesus. And the thing is, we tend to forget that that couldn't possibly be what it was. Herod didn't see it. Herod couldn't see it, apparently. He couldn't piece it all together. If this was as obvious as a bright light in heaven shining down like a spotlight on the manger and Jesus is there, everybody would have come to see it. This was something that only the wise men were able to determine what it was. And once they determined what it was, then they traveled and followed the sign in heaven. But we kind of follow the Hollywood version of this and we think it was somehow easy. We miss the fact they were wise men. They saw something that in the sky that nobody else understood and they were able to follow it to the Messiah. But it wasn't necessarily easy and obvious. It may have taken quite a while for this event to come together in the heavens in such a way that these wise men were able to go, okay, we've been watching this for a while now. It appears that this is the sign in heaven that we've been waiting for. It doesn't say that that happened on the first night, the night that Jesus was born. It could have taken months or even a year or more before they finally went, okay, it's all coming together. This is exactly what we were waiting for. We wrongfully assume, again, that they showed up on the night that Jesus was born, and there's every indication in the world that that's not the case. But who knows when it was that the wise men actually left from the east and headed towards Jerusalem and Bethlehem? We have no idea. So this idea that the wise men showed up on the night that Jesus was born is just clearly wrong, and there's no evidence to support that. In fact, the evidence points the other way. But the other reality in all of this is we have no idea how long it took before they set out in the first place or what the sign was. But whatever it was, it couldn't have been so obvious that everybody could have followed it. Otherwise, what would Herod have needed them for? He could have just followed them and gone on his own. So when we think about the story and follow it through, it makes perfect sense that Herod didn't have any idea what was going on. So whatever the sign in heaven was that they followed to the child... It wasn't necessarily obvious to everybody, but it was obvious to them because they were looking for it. So again, lots of things there to discuss and to look at, but we've got to get away from this Hollywood, about, this Hollywood idea of what happened around Jesus' birth. It makes great movies, but it isn't historically accurate in any way, shape, or form. I also want to go back to this question about Luke's census, and I promised this on the last episode. Luke chapter 2, there's an initial discussion here in this verse and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about before, that we should give the benefit of the doubt to the people that were there. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. All right, why is that controversial? So there are skeptics who look at that and raise the question that Luke could not possibly have been right. And there's a couple reasons why they say that. Number one, 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually discusses Quirinius, um, the gentleman who was supposedly governing Syria. And there becomes a question because Josephus also mentions a census that occurred. And the census that Josephus occurred appears to take place somewhere around 6 to 7 AD. And of course, the question is rightfully raised, well, that seems too late to have been the census that Luke was talking about. And it probably is. There's also a question about when Quirinius was serving as governor and who was actually alive and ruling at that point, and it wasn't Herod. So there's a couple of different possibilities here, and this is, again, the danger of doing this from 2,000 years later. We assume that we can take Josephus's comments and absolutely know exactly what he's talking about and Luke's comments and know exactly what he's talking about when we're missing important details around both sides of this. The reality is when we look back in the past, it's impossible a lot of times to know exactly what all of the details were because we're getting little tiny snapshots in time about very small parts of what's going on. But we also need to read carefully because sometimes the details will jump out and show us what we need to see and maybe answer some of these questions for us. For example, in this case, what does Luke say when he says, look at this? When, when, what does Luke say when he's talking about this? In verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. If Luke is calling out that this census first took place then, why call that out if it's the only one? It certainly tends to read that Quirinius was possibly oversaw multiple censuses or that the Romans conducted multiple censuses, which is reasonable. I mean, the Romans ruled this area for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not at all improbable or impossible that they conducted more than one census. So we don't for sure know which one Josephus is talking about or which one Luke is talking about. But Luke makes it clear for us that the census he's talking about is the first one related to this gentleman who's governing Syria. We don't have any idea that that's what Josephus is referring to. He could be referring to a second or third one. And it certainly seems plausible because if Luke is calling it out as the first one, there were, uh, there were others out there. Luke also makes reference later to another census occurring in Acts chapter 5. So it's not at all impossible or unlikely that there were future censuses and that we could be getting the two confused. It's also not impossible that Quirinius governed that area or served the Roman, the Roman Empire in more than one capacity over the course of time. You know, if you think about Abraham Lincoln... We all think of Lincoln as president of the United States, and he was. But Lincoln served in a great many roles before that. So if you called out and said, Abraham Lincoln, member of Congress, well, you'd be correct. You would also be correct if you said, Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States. Neither is wrong, but he served the government of the United States, the people of the United States, in more than one capacity throughout his career, and at more than one time. Lincoln was, I think Lincoln lost more elections than he won. He had an enormously bad track record before becoming president. So when you look at this, everybody is quick to jump on Josephus and say, well, Josephus clearly gets it right. I'm not saying that he didn't get it right. He might not have, but he most likely, let's assume that he did. But just because Josephus got it right doesn't mean Luke got it wrong. And Luke is closer to the events by an entire generation than Josephus was. 
There's no reason we can't give Luke the benefit of the doubt here. The other question that oftentimes gets raised is, well, there's no record to indicate that censuses were conducted this way. Why would Joseph and Mary have to leave Nazareth and go into Bethlehem? I love this idea. It's almost like, well, the Romans were reasonable people, and they certainly didn't want to upset the people who were... I'll go ahead and finish the statement. The people who were slaves underneath them, like Mary and Joseph. This idea that the Romans really cared that what they did upset the people who were subjects underneath them is laughable. Life under Roman rule, the Romans didn't remotely care. And if the Romans decided they wanted to do this, they would have absolutely done it. There is evidence, and I will put a notation in from the gentleman's book that it comes from, there is evidence based on a papyrus found in Egypt uh, dated back to about 104 AD that, yes, censuses were sometimes conducted exactly this way, that you had to go to your ancestral home. Maybe Joseph owned land in Bethlehem. Maybe it was part of his family home or family heritage or something. We know he was connected to the house of David. We don't entirely understand why. This is, again, one of those things. If Luke is writing this as a falsehood, if Luke is, t if Luke is telling a lie, why would you tell it that way? Why would you go out of your way to say something that people alive while you're writing it would be able to look at you and go, that's not true. I, that's never happened. The Romans have never done that. If Luke, is writing, if Luke is telling a whopper in all of this, he's going to be called on the carpet for it by people who live during that day. So again, on one hand, Luke is terribly careless and awful and gets it wrong. And on the other hand, he's just devious enough that he's able to sneak this past everybody back then. It doesn't seem like you can have this both ways. Luke tends to be a very good historian when it comes to facts like this. And these little details do matter. The funny thing is, when the Bible gets them right, they never get credit for it. And anything that's called into question, even though there's entirely reasonable explanations as to why there might be a difference between, let's say, Josephus and Luke, Luke never gets the benefit of the doubt, but Josephus, who lived, you know, considerably longer afterwards, always gets the benefit of the doubt. Except when Josephus talks about Jesus, in which case he gets no benefit of the doubt. So it's, we want to have this both ways as long as it discredits the Bible, which is a Dangerous and not very, you know, logical place to be. So, there's good reason to believe Luke's account of why Joseph and Mary were headed to Bethlehem. And certainly, again, when we look at this, the two stories, Matthew's account and Luke's account, really do add to each other. There's a richness that we get from being able to see it from Joseph's side of things and from Mary's side of things that we don't otherwise get. And it really does bring the story that much more to life. There is one more that I want to address before we wrap up, and this one, oh my goodness, this is popular online. And this is maybe one of, and I'm not trying to be mean when I say this, this is maybe one of the dumbest objections in all of this. And this goes to this idea of putting things in context. The very thing that we started with in episode one of the podcast, putting things in context. Okay. So there is this idea that Jesus would be born as a virgin. And again, Matthew quotes the scriptures, Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. But while he thought on the, about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This is Joseph, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. Remember, Mary's pregnant, they're engaged, and Joseph's going, what the heck? Well, that's terrible. So Joseph is thinking about breaking off the wedding. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, Don't worry. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Okay, there is online this idea that that's not what that says, that it's really translated young woman and not virgin, and that Mary, that Jesus was never born of a virgin, and the Bible doesn't actually say that. This is maybe one of the worst examples of taking something out of context that you can possibly come up with. And so we're going to just jump back into this real quickly and wrap this up. Book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you also weary my but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so we have two possibilities here. That that is referring to a young girl will conceive and bear a son, or a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Now let's wrap some context around this question. Because if the quote is a young girl shall a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, that's been happening since the beginning of time. Most women who conceive a child are young women when they do so. There is nothing extraordinary about that. But this story from Isaiah is extraordinary in every way, shape, and form. The context of this is, in Isaiah chapter 7, Israel's enemies, Judah's enemies at that point, have, have basically invaded the land. And the king of Judah is not a believer. He doesn't really believe in the God of, of Israel, and he's just terrified that this is it, that they're going to be overrun. And it, again, when we put in context what's happening, God basically, Isaiah goes to the Lord and the Lord says, Isaiah, I'm going to deliver Israel. And I want the king to understand that I did this and that it wasn't just a fluke. So here's what I'm going to do. You go to the king, King Ahaz, and you tell him, ask a sign. Ask a sign of me and I will prove to you that this was me who did this and it wasn't just a fluke and it didn't happen on its own. Only a very few times that God has ever gone out of his way to do that. So God puts that on the table and that's where we pick up the story. So Isaiah has taken this, God has said, go to the king who's not a believer and say, ask whatever sign you want and, it, I, and I, will, I will answer your request and I will prove to you that I am God. You hear a lot of atheists say this. If God would just prove himself to me. Okay, so Ahaz is the atheist in this role. He's more of a polytheist in this role. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign given is fine. If you're not going to ask a sign from heaven, then I will give you a sign that proves to the entire world that I am God. So that's the full passage in context. Now, if God is trying to prove to the king of Israel 
and really to the entire world, that he is who he says he is, is he either going to A, choose something remarkable that never happens, a virgin being with child, or B, is he going to choose a young woman is going to be pregnant with a male child, which happens 50% of the time every young woman gets pregnant with a child. I mean, <laughs> you understand how ridiculous this is. And yet online, this is thrown around like it is some massive discovery that that word in the Hebrew could also be translated as young woman and not virgin. Well, it could be, but it can only be done so if you took it remarkably out of context. The context is clearly that God is trying to prove something amazing in this situation, and in doing so, he's going to do something amazing. So this is what's so very frustrating about this. It's things like this that lead people to believe that, well, the Bible's not true, and all these conspiracy theories online are right. And this is what, this really is frustrating because this leads people away from a relationship with a God who loves them so very much. You know, the reason we've spent the entire month of December on the Christmas story is to stress God's great love for you and for me. You know, that journey, began, the journey that began in Bethlehem, that little manger that we all think about, ends at the cross in Jerusalem 33 years later. It ends at the cross where Jesus dies to pay the sin debt of all of mankind. But it began there in Bethlehem. What I would really encourage you to do is to open the pages of the Bible for yourself. I, I, would, I, I like the New King James Version, but start at Matthew and just start reading. And watch where it takes you. It, it's amazing when you read through Scripture on your own. It is not what you've heard online, I promise you. There's so much to the Bible when you actually jump in and start reading it, and God will open up, the Holy Spirit will open up to you different things every time you read it. Read it with an open mind, read it with an open heart, but I hope you'll take the opportunity to read what Scripture says on your own and begin that journey to find a Heavenly Father who loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. That's what Christmas is all about, and that's why we've spent so much time in the month of December focusing in on the Christmas story. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, I hope you'll consider hitting the like button for this week's episode and the subscribe button for the channel. You can find our podcasts here on YouTube and on iTunes and Spotify. And you can find us on our webpage at prooftograce.com or via email you can reach out to us at prooftograce at yahoo.com. Thank you once again for joining us and I hope to see you next week. Bye-bye.